Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Hannah, and I'm the pastor here. And if you are the praying kind, I would appreciate it if you would pray with me. Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be yours. May our hearts be open to the spirit, to new birth, to light, to new wisdom. May we walk humbly with you and be yours and in all of the ways that we don't today, oh God, because we know that there are ways we will fall short. We ask that we would find new ways tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All month, <laughs> um, all month here at the church, we've been talking about what it means to have a good enough life with God. We've been talking about all of those feelings that we feel in a new year, the desire to be better, the desire to be perfect, and trying to figure out what it is that God might actually want from us in the midst of all of that. And each week we have been looking at a scripture, but we've also been looking the whole time at this scripture some of you may have sung or heard or heard tell when you were a child, Micah 6.8 that what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And so we talked justice and we talked mercy, and today we're going to talk humility. What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? What does it mean to be people who are born again and again and again? And there's a lot that we would have uh, said today, a lot that we would have talked about um, the world has had a difficult week. Um, people are in danger. I, with some of you, spent last night um, at the O'Hare airport uh, begging and yelling and protesting for 18 people, including an 18-month-old and a uh, six-month-old, to be released from detention in the airport who had green cards. Um, and all of that is with us, and all of that is living with us, and still we have to figure out how to be alive, right? Um, we can sit in our shock, or we can sit in our sadness, or we can sit in our confusion about what is right, um, or we can be together, and we can pray, and we can work, and we can try and figure out how to be alive. So let's start with this walking humbly thing, this walking humbly with our God. Uh, and I want to talk to you about an immigrant, uh, one of the very few who I would have considered turning away had I been there on the day. Uh, I want to talk to you about an immigrant named Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Christopher Columbus. <laughs> so um, uh, I grew up hearing a lot about Christopher Columbus. If you grew up in the United States, you might have grown up hearing a lot about Christopher Columbus. Uh, and I heard two main kind of narratives about Christopher Columbus. One, right, was like, snazzy man and ship finds world, makes things. Um, and, uh, but but uh, as I grew older, I, I heard that narrative complicated, right? Um, a, was he the first European here? B, why would we be counting Europeans in a place that's not Europe? What's the purpose of that? What is discovery, right? What is, um, who belongs to where? Who belongs to what? Um, and I, I got this other story about him as sort of, uh, 
the cruel and evil colonizer. He enslaved thousands, right? He like he uh, just contributed to an enormous amount of evil and oppression in the world. And then I got to college, and I was in a class where we were going to read Christopher Columbus's logbooks, like the actual stuff that he wrote when he was on these ships and the letters that he wrote back um, to the people who had funded his journey. And I would commend this to all of you because they are super weird and super interesting. Um, so uh, A, number one, right? Did other people think the world was flat and Christopher Columbus think the world was a sphere? No, other people thought the world was a sphere. Christopher Columbus thought that the world was shaped like a breast and at the place where a nipple would be was the Garden of Eden and he was gonna find it by sailing on the ocean. <laughs> Facts you didn't know about Christopher Columbus. Um, <laughs> but. But what really, that is like 100% true. You can look that up. That is what Christopher Columbus thought. Um, but what was really meaningful to me about reading those, what struck me then and what I have carried with me every day since, is um, a letter that I read that he wrote back to the people funding his journey after he had landed, um, probably in uh, Haiti, um, and, and what he wrote was um, about the Arawak people, the indigenous people that he encountered first on these islands that he landed on, um, that they were extraordinarily generous, that they brought him things, um, gifts as he was in the ocean, right? They were probably acting out of hospitality. Most cultures have an act of hospitality towards a stranger who arrives on your door, right? It's something we see a lot in the Bible, um, that if a stranger arrives, you bring them gifts, and that's what the Arawak people did. They brought food, they brought um, necklaces, they brought things to these strangers that they had not seen. And then he says in his letter, he says in his letter, uh, they think that we are gods. Which is interesting because he can't speak their language. Right? He like literally doesn't know what they're saying. So how has he come to the conclusion? How has he decided? How has he discovered? that the people believe him to be a god. Uh, it's because they were talking, and that's what he decided to hear, right? It's because they were talking, and that was the only way that he could interpret the profound difference that he saw from his past experience. It was the only way he could see to see people who lived a life that was different from his own was to assume that they would worship him as a god. That's how convinced he was. That's how addicted he was. That's how sick he was on superiority and supremacy, right? That he could hear people say words that he had never heard and assume that they were worship and assume that they were adoration. And that has stuck with me ever since, not, I think, because it excuses, right, the acts of evil that he took part in, but because it humanizes them in a way that makes me uh, really check myself. Um, because it's easy to say, oh, that guy, oh, a bunch of those guys, they were just evil and cruel. They just wanted to murder everyone. They wanted to destroy everything. They were terrible. Um, but when I look at someone and I see that they were just arrogant, right, that they had an extraordinary arrogance, um, an extraordinary possessiveness and lack of self-awareness and lack of ability to see that there might be something in the picture they were missing, that is something I can find in my, myself too. That's something I find in my heart and in my soul, that desire um, 
to keep my identity at all costs, to keep my power at all costs because I am afraid and because I am insecure. Um, I've never, you know, to my knowledge, directly participated in acts of genocide, but I have, I have been someone who, when challenged with the idea that my perspective might be wrong or that what I'm saying might be wrong, shut down and clammed up into a ball, right? I have felt that feeling while fighting with my husband where um, like I have begun to understand that he is definitely right in this particular, not in all situations, in this particular situation, um, but my body is still uh, hot and shaking, right? I can still feel my heart tense and I just know that I'm gonna hold on to it no matter what, even if I can, even if a layer of my brain knows that I'm wrong. I, that arrogance, that lack of humility, that desire to overpower, um, which I think comes out of fear that we will be overpowered, that we will be unheard, that we will be unseen, right? It's always a fear about being less. That is a part of me. <laughs> and so it's a part of myself that I have to check. So I think about that letter a lot um, because I think about how wrong I might be about everything that I think about the world. Um, I hope this doesn't make you nervous, since I'm your pastor, but I, uh, I, <laughs> I really intentionally, every like six to ten months, I sit down and I say, uh, hey, do I still believe in God? And why? <laughs> right? Uh, hey, do I think that the scriptures are authoritative? And why? <laughs> do I think that a guy named Jesus lived and died and was resurrected in a profound miracle that denies like all of the physics that I learned and why. I sit down and I wonder. I sit down and I ask because I never want to be one of those people who's preaching something, who's living something just because that's what they lived five years ago. I ask myself because I know that I'm human and I'm humble and I could be wrong, right? I have to reflect and I have to think, I have to walk humbly with God um, because otherwise if I never find that place inside of myself that where I can be wrong and let go, that will result in cruelty towards others. I just know, I just know from watching. Um, and so I want to share a clip with you on how that humility with God can lead us into new places. Humility where we say, God might be leading me towards something bigger. God might be leading me towards something kinder. I might have messed up. This is the other part, right? A big barrier to us admitting that we messed up is not just that we want to feel strong. It's that um, we live in a culture that has taught us that, that messing up means, like, it's all over. Right? Like, oh, you messed up? Might as well crumble into a ball of dust. Like, we're worthless. It's, oh, no, messing up, right? There's a reason that we have a language of sin and error in our faith tradition, which is that it happens all the freaking time. <laughs> you should be prepared for it to happen to you. And it doesn't have to be a source of shame. It doesn't have to be a source of um, self-hatred. It's just like a thing that happens. We mess up and we start over, right? And we invite the spirit and the water in to help us do the thing over again and anew. So what, if we had humility, if we had humility, what would that humility allow us to do? And so I want to show you a clip. Uh, so I'm going to, spoiler alert, okay, but has anybody watched One Day at a Time on Netflix? Okay, it's so good, you guys. It's so, so good. So uh, there was apparently a TV show that I never saw because uh, I was, I'm too young, called One Day at a Time in the 70s, okay? First show about a single mom, divorced mom, two daughters, grandmother, 
Uh, they've done a remake on Netflix with, I'm legally obligated to refer to her as National Treasure, Rita Moreno, right? National Treasure, Rita Moreno, EGOT winner, Rita Moreno, songstress of my childhood, Rita Moreno, as the grandmother, and it's about a Cuban family in LA. And um, I'm gonna spoil it if that is gonna like tragically hurt you, walk out for five minutes and come back in, but it's still gonna be totally worth watching after I tell you what's gonna happen, which is one of the storylines of this, of this show is that one of the kids, um, the third generation, comes out. And they, it's like, the, it's just the most genuine, like they come out in the way that you come out, which is like a little bit at a time, and it's a process, and you're not quite sure who you are, and then other people aren't quite sure who you are, and you work it out with your friends, and you work it out with your family, and it's really, really beautiful. But one of the most beautiful moments is that the grandmother, Rita Moreno, is this devout, devout Catholic, right? She's a devout Catholic, and so we watch her process when her grandchild comes out to her, what does that mean for me and God, right? What does that mean for my faith? What does that mean for our family's faith? And I think there's some lessons to learn about humility and being born again, and so I want us to play these couple of minutes. I'm gonna try and get out of your way. What's happening? I just came out to Abuelita. You did? And I think it's beautiful. You do? Claro, and I accept it immediately. No questions asked. Well, that is great. Miss Alvarez, you have the coolest family. I'm going to call my grandma. Maybe she's finally ready to hear that I'm a vegan. I'm going to Skype Carmen and tell her the awesome news. <laughs> I love my family. We love you too. <laughs> I told you. Wait, so you're not okay with it? No. I am very upset. Oh, thank God. I mean, thank God, Mommy, that you're so honest with your feelings. Yeah. I know you don't agree with it because you are so liberal. And I'm just a narrow-minded homo fallopian. So you mean you're homophobic? Huh? There is a judgment. Look, I know you are cool with this, but you have to understand, I'm a religious woman. I know, Mommy. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I have a problem with Elena being gay. It goes against God. Although God did make us in his image and God doesn't make mistakes, clearly. <laughs> and when it comes to the gays, the Pope did say, who am I to George? And the Pope represents God. So what, am I going to go against the Pope and God? Who the hell do I think I am? <laughs> okay, okay, I'm good. You just worked that out in 10 seconds? See. Because she is my granddaughter and I love her no matter what. Yeah. So tell me, when is the parade? pause. Uh, it's great, right? It's great. Everybody should watch this show. Um, but, I, but it's also really real. <laughs> um, it, 
it really shows me, I think, the capacity that we have to change and to love if we maintain that humility, right? And that sense that God has made all people and God has made all things. What are the two keys to her response? The first is, and I'm, I'm really grateful that the show said this, right? When the kid came out to her, total love, right? Did not work out her doubts on the kid. Did not work out her problems on the kid. Kid gets love, the end, right? And like the fact that it holds that as um, a moral necessity, I think is a, a, an important fact about the situation, right? We can't work out our confusion on other people. They deserve our love first, and then we figure it out. <laughs> and then the second thing, the second thing is that what her humility allows her to do is see that God might be bigger than her experiences, right? God might be bigger than her assumptions. What's the key for her? The key for her is what? I think I'm right. I think I'm better than God. Like God made all these people. God made this kid who I love. I think I know better. I think I'm I think I'm bigger. No. And it's the humility that allows her to see, okay, I thought this one thing, right? She's I think 83 years old. I thought this one thing for 80 years. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out love is bigger. Turns out God is bigger. Turns out, right, the the pope has given me room. Right? God, God's faith, my faith in God has given me room to see something new and to see something different guided by love. And that's the second part, right? Is it's not just walk humbly. <laughs> it's not just walk humbly. It's not just always think that there might be room for you to grow. It's walk humbly with God. Walk humbly in the direction that God shows you, which the first instinct of that direction should always, must always be love and care for God's creation. That's number one, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's number one, God made these people. Who are you to judge them when God has not, right? That love must be the first directive of our hearts. And after we do love first, love most, then we can figure out the rest with a humble attitude. Um, there's a reason I'm glad. I picked this clip earlier in the week because I think it has a lot to do with us figuring out what it means to approach life. Um, but it's more poignant to me now, um, because another big part of this is that part of where she finds her compassion is her experience as an immigrant, right? Part of where she finds her compassion, you'll later see throughout the show, is that she had to completely change her life, leave her family behind, find a new world life experience um, and in the pain of that and the frustration of that, she finds a place, right, to root her compassion and her love for her granddaughter and for all the people around her. Um, and that is the immigrant experience. The immigrant experience is a pilgrim experience. It is a faith experience. The immigrant experience is one of taking enormous risk, enormous risk and enormous pain to contribute to somewhere else to try something new, to grow your heart three sizes and your brain five more, right? To like, immigrants take on one of the greatest challenges that society has to offer. And I think our society has done nothing but benefit from the immigrants who have made that choice to be a part of it. Um, that's not the language that we are hearing right now. It's not the language that we are hearing right now. We are hearing now that we are at risk, right? that when who the we is, 
is probably not a whole lot of us who are in this room, despite our citizenship papers, right? Um, who the we is is a small and tiny group um, of people who are afraid and who think that fear rather than love should dictate all of our actions, who think that certainty rather than humility should guide how we approach the world. Fear and certainty are a dangerous combination, and they have been every day of every year of our lives and all lives. Fear and certainty are dangerous. Love and humility are what God asks of us. And I feel culpable, I, um, and I hope we do as a church too, that Christians have been such a part of allowing, of allowing this um, sin to take place, of promoting this pain in the lives of people around us, this danger for families who might be separated, for children who might never see relatives again, for people who have done nothing but flee horror, and we greet them with more, or a closed door. And Christians have been a part of that. Um, we read John 3.16 today. Pretty, pretty, pretty famous passage of the Bible, right? For God so loved the world. And a lot of Christians have decided that the important part of the John passage um, is the part where it says, for those who believe. They've decided that our job, um, rather than leaving judgment to God, is to take it upon ourselves as our first task, right? And that if we take judgment upon ourselves as our first task and we divide up the world into real believers and not believers or good people and bad people, um, then we will gain that certainty, we will gain that superiority, we will gain that power to do whatever we like to the people who don't fit in into the boxes that we have written. But I think the most important part of that scripture, which is an important one, which is a faith-guiding one, the most important part is not the those who believe. It's the for God so loved the world. The world isn't yours. <laughs> the people aren't yours. The creation isn't yours, the judgment isn't yours, the decisions aren't yours, they are God's. And if God has created all of us, and if God's greatest act, if God's act in which he incorporates us and uses us was to love the world so much he would die for all of it, that's the first thing we have to do too. Everything else is nonsense. Everything else is time-wasting. Everything else is arrogance if we do not first say, if God loved everything about this world so much he would die for it, so will I. There is no part of this world that is outside of my care. There is no part of this world that is outside of our love and our mercy. There is no part of this world that we can say, oh, that's their problem. The whole world, the whole world created by God, the whole world is what we have to care about. And it includes the Muslims, and it includes the Yazidis, and it includes the atheists, and it includes everyone who is at risk, everyone who is in danger, everyone to whom what was done to Jesus is being done is included in the people who we are told we must love. We have not been born by water or of the Spirit if we cannot find it in ourselves to care about people who God cared to make in the first place. We have failed if all we do is try and take God's place in saying who's who and what's what, rather than following God's lead in loving and protecting everyone we meet. 
This is not what our faith is for. This is not what our faith can mean. And it isn't what our faith will mean if we decide that it won't. If we decide that we will be different, if we decide that the church will not be a voice for division, the church will not be a voice for hate, the church will not be a voice for expulsion and pain and disaster, but the church will be the place of sanctuary where all are welcome, where all are known, regardless of whether they would call themselves a part of our community, we are where all will be safe because that is the church's job above and before anything else. God so loved the world, God gave God's life. All we are being asked to give is our voice, our time, right? A protest or a phone call or whatever, money to, the, to lawyers. We are being asked of so little in comparison to the life that was giving. How can we not give it to those who are at risk of losing everything? This country is a place for all. This faith is a place that stands for all. This faith is a place that fights for all. God loves us so much. God has given the us the power to be humble. But this is the other, this is the other false teaching of, of Christians lately, right? The one is that this is the way things should be. We should be divided. But then there's another that's more dangerous. There's another that's more dangerous, um, which if you're ever feeling it inside of yourself, just read Letter to a Birmingham Jail, which is that what it means to be humble is to never speak up about anything. That what it means to follow God is to never right, act on what you believe to be true. To be humble is to understand at any point in our life that we might be wrong and we might have to reconsider. But while we think we know what's right, we better act on it. We better live like it. We better move forward with it, or we are just fearful cowards watching the world be taken and watching the people be harmed. And what mercy means is not letting people get away with harm. What forgiveness means is not saying that it doesn't matter how we treat each other. What prayer means is not I pray for my government and then watch what happens next. These are the calls that the churches of some of us have been giving, and those are calls that fail to see every page of the scriptures and every moment of our history where the most powerful parts of living with God have been walking humbly with. Understanding that we are not, right, like we're not the deciders, but we also have a call to move forward and to move forward with God, for God's people, every single one of them. The world is hurting. People are hurting. But we have a power unknown. We have a power unseen, which is the power of the love of Jesus Christ, who made every single one of us to be exactly who we are, and who calls us to create a world where we can be that person, where we can be those people, where we can be that community. At the protest last night, um, there were great chants, right? Uh, no ban, no wall, America is made for all. Um, but there was one that struck me in my faith life, right, in my heart zone, which was someone was playing the bongos. <laughs> and uh, they started to sing, um, we are unstoppable, another world is possible. 
we are unstoppable, another world is possible. And when I think of that other world, what I think of is the kingdom. The kingdom, which it is said, is of all races and kinds. The kingdom, which is formed by God and not us. The kingdom where there are no tears and there is no separation, but there is justice and mercy. If we don't stand for that, what will we fall for? If we don't live for that now, what is the point of living? Justice and mercy, humbly with our God. It won't be easy, but it also doesn't have to be the hardest thing if we move forward together. If we say, I don't have to have the perfect right answer, but I do have to live for this. I have to live for something, because if Jesus lived and died for me, I have to live and die for others. People are in pain and danger. That is our business. That is our purpose, as Gwendolyn Brooks says. That is our magnitude and bond. We are called. We are called to be born again and again and again every day to newness, to new life. And a part of that new life is protecting the life that is out there. Let's go stand for that together. Let's go do that together. Let's go fight for that together. Let's chant together and sing together and protest together. And we will come back here next Sunday and ask God to fill us up with new water and new spirit to do it all over again. Amen? Amen.